of Atlantis. Your foul species is hereby banned from the seas and oceans of the world. Any who enter the waters will face my wrath. Imperious Rex! Hello and welcome to an all-new edition of Third Degree Burn. This is a special series focusing on the 1990s uh, solo book called Namor by John Byrne. I'm your host, Kirk Greenfield, and I'm joined by my co-host, Tim Elliott. Hello. Hello, Tim. Uh, it's a Sunday morning here, uh, spread across the nation. We're in different ends of the country, but we're going to bring you two issues of this continuing series. We've already done issue one in the first episode, and we had a lot to unpack. That took a long time to set the stage for this. We're going to pick up the pace considerably today and do issues two and three, which seem to be uh, a logical way to do this. So probably we'll continue doing dyads, two issues each episode from here on out. But we'll see how, how the content goes and if that really requires it. Um, Namor, of course, being created back in uh, the early 1940s. Um, I've drawn a blank at the moment who the creator was. Everett. Uh, uh, yes, Bill Everett. Thank Bill you Everett. very much. I was close. And uh, the original publication was probably an eight-page giveaway for a movie theater. Uh, I know this is a kind of a strange concept, but if you recall the very flimsy newsprint comics that came with a big boy uh, restaurant chain, that's probably the closest thing to what they had intended back then. It was an eight-page uh, floppy uh, with no slick cover. Uh, I don't even know if it was stapled. And although it may have been printed. I don't know that it was ever distributed, but that was the original appearance of Namor, and almost immediately it progressed into a Marvel Comics uh, continuing character. So he was, so to speak, the first uh, Marvel character, although they weren't known as Marvel. Um, he was the first hybrid between two species, and as I mentioned last episode, um, the tale of his birth between Captain McKenzie and Princess Fenn, I misspoke myself in the prior episode. Her name was Fenn. Um, the, the, the mating of them has been retold multiple times, and uh, I had mistakenly said that it was John Byrne's innovation that they got married on board ship. In fact, that came a little bit earlier. I think it's when the tale was retold in 1968 that that was introduced. But each time the, time the tale gets told, the artistic drawing of the Atlanteans changes and shifts a little bit more, as does Finn's hair color. So I wanted to set the record straight there. I did a little bit of research, a little bit of background there, and, and determined that it was not Byrne who did the innovation that they actually got married. I believe the original tale simply implied that they shacked up, which, if you think about the sensibilities of uh, the 1940s, seems a little out there. But uh, they didn't think, worry about it back then. They didn't have you think to, it'd be flipped. That they didn't have the comics code that they had to deal with back then. Um, no, but they were coming off the, uh, you know, the like the Hayes Code in the early 30s where Hollywood kind of cleaned up their act with films and stuff. So they kind of started self-governing that um, might have carried over into, you know, because these were considered funny books for um, for kids. But I, I know there was a G.I.'s uh, really got into this. My uncle. Who was not in World War II, but went to Vietnam, was a big comic reader. So no, yes. a lot of these GIs read these when they were overseas. So, um, If you want a further example of how loose or 
Uh, maybe that's not the right word. How graphic, uh, how gory um, some of those Golden Age tales would be. The original 10 issues of Captain America, which were produced in World War II, um, had to be censored before they could be reprinted in the late 60s in Fantasy Masterpiece. Literally, the artwork had to be re redesigned, changed, um, not just the artwork, but a couple of the, the words because of racial slurs. Yeah, uh, it, the, the, it was a different time and a different sensibility. And we were at war, so they were trying to whip up public fervor to support the war effort and vilify and dehumanize the enemies. So people, you know, um, Asians, Japanese, um, the Nazis, the Red Skull, they are all over the top, cruel, vicious, and dehumanized. So anyway, let's... Well, that's not the period we're focusing on. We're supposed to be focusing on Namor in the 90s. So I just want to set, set the... Sorry? No, I was going to tell you, this is more of a modern... This is more of his modern take on it. Um, yes. And I think we brought this up in our first episode, but this is sort of a spiritual uh, sequel, if you want to say that word, sequel, to your... You did a, uh, a podcast on Namor years ago called uh, Imperious Rex. When you yes. covered these confessions um, of a serial surface invader. Uh, so this is kind of a, a kind of a an homage or or a, a, again, it's in the same spirit of your old um, podcast, which I think we put links to in another uh, previous episode, which I don't know if those links were still valid or not. I think yeah, we had some trouble with them. If you want to hear Kirk's old um, with your daughter. Yeah, it was somewhat tongue in cheek. It was a different, different flavor, a different uh different time but yeah. you're welcome to look for them maybe we'll talk about that at some point so yeah. uh are you ready to start with issue two i am a, a i am ready I, i've got my synopsis right here let me, let me get my paperwork here uh as we said this is issue two and this is john byrne um relaunch that he did in the 90s okay namor submariner issue number two uh this had a cover price of one dollar and our writer and artist, John Byrne. Inker is Bob Wycheck. Uh, colorist is Brad Kata, Dan Kata. Letter is Kenny Lopez. Cover arts by John Byrne. Our editor is Terry Cavanaugh. And our editor-in-chief this time was Tom, Tom DeFalco. Uh, release date for issue two was March 6, 1990. With a cover date of May 1990. 32 pages, 23 a story. The only other book I could find at the time was a reprint of classic X-Men number 32, uh, How Sharper Than a Serpent's Tooth. So there were no other, there was no other original burn artwork at the time this came out. And the story is called Eagle's Wings and Lion's Claws. And our players for this issue are Namor, Caleb and Carrie Alexander, Phoebe and Desmond Mars, Namoretta, the Griffin, also known as John Horton, and a character we are introducing called Headhunter. Biologist Carrie and Caleb Alexander discuss her new relationship with Namor when the Griffin attacks through the window. It abducts Carrie and Caleb suffers a heart, heart attack during the fight trying to defend her. Namoretta finds Caleb and, and flies to tell her cousin. Namor flies off to rescue Carrie. He worries he might reveal his presence to the world who still think him dead. Namor confronts the Griffin at the Statue of Liberty as the Mars twins watch the remote drone. The twins hired the Griffin to draw out the mysterious owner of the new Oracle Corporation. Namor takes the fight 
with a griffin to the sea below to give him advantage. We see a mysterious woman in red, or a mysterious woman in a red room, watching the news event reports of the fight. She dresses and leaves. More to come on this. Meanwhile, Carrie makes her way down the Statue of Liberty to the ground floor as a griffin emerges from the water without Namor. To be continued. That's it. This was a this was a kind of a quick, uh, punchy action, punchy run yes. run action. Yeah, much more than the previous episode, where which was more dialogue heavy. And to your point, it was setting the stage of what we're he was putting all the pieces in place. Do you want to go ahead and do the the summary for three, or hold that for a couple minutes? Let's hold it, and we'll just kind of go through this issue. We'll do it. Okay. Uh, the cover? You, yeah. What you think of this issue? Um, I liked it, but I was totally unfamiliar with the Griffin. Uh, I didn't know the character. I mean, visually, I'd heard that were, there was one. And I think, as we learn later on, it was associated with the Beast in his solo series. Mm-hmm. So I really didn't know anything, his backstory, it appeared to me he, the it, whatever you want to say, is not human. In this version, not at all, as far as I can tell. It's a beast. It's He's an mindless, yeah. However, in the original version, I thought it, it was a sentient human or humanoid. So there's a, a reimagining here. Well, anyway, I like this. If you read his backstory, uh, and this is Jim, Jim Horton is his human name. He was the Roxon uh, hired him and they grafted claws and wings to him and they gave him some kind of a mutagenic compound or something. And he went off after I think he was either the Avengers or the Beast. And I guess when in when he was defeated and in prison, he continued to mutate. So he became more animal like he got the lion face. He got the tail. He got more of, um, you know, animal like legs. So then he kind of eventually mutated into this mindless, truly a griffin instead of the human character that he was. So that's why I, I was the same with you, Kirk. I knew nothing about him until I read this issue and did this little bit of backstory on him. But, I like yeah, that it's, a great deal because of how this relationship <clears throat> evolves. They're clearly, you know, antagonist. Um, he's the villain of the piece in this this issue but as their relationship evolves i like it where it goes although i can't well let's wait until we get there i yeah. don't want to give look forward too far um i uh, i like the cover it's mainly a dark blue it's positioned from above the statue of liberty where namor and the griffin are doing hand-to-hand combat in the air and I didn't see it at first, but it says, out of his element. And then it says a little bit lower, alone against the savagery of the griffin. I had overlooked that the first time that I glanced at this cover. I, I didn't quite catch that. Out of his element, I thought, was the message. Uh, the first page, there's a tall, vertical building that I want to say is vaguely reminiscent of the Chrysler Building in New York City. This is of interest be, uh, only because it's in contrast to the modern building silhouette that we saw at the tail end of last issue, yeah. which uh, which looked like a World Trade Center building. So, And that's where the antagonists Phoebe and Desmond Mars are located. So I, you know, I see a connection between the two issues here as he's, he's showing you the location, the positioning of, of Namor. You hadn't seen that before. Right. Well, this is obviously sometime later. 
because our other issue ended with him deciding to to uh, he was he was he would had his this in blood imbalance that Caleb fixed that he they determined that because he's a hybrid if he spends too much time in either air or water he gets an imbalance and that was, that was his explanation for why he would kind of go crazy. Yeah, bipolar. So Caleb, yeah, so Caleb fixes it with some kind of a uh, an alarm or something, so he knows when to switch and go back. So this is sometime later where he's he's savaged or salvaged all this uh, treasure from the ocean bottom. He's cr- bought he bought a, a kind of a defunct company, renamed it Oracle, which is what we that's the name of the boat his father was on, right? I'm not certain. I can't remember. Anyway, he, he's be. he's now a businessman. He's kind of Lex Luthor like he is now wearing suits and he's he's the world still thinks he's dead. And he's bought, I guess, this. I don't know if he's got the whole building or if it's just the headquarters. But this, I think, is his apartments in this building as well. And the Oracle headquarters are in here. And he's obviously started some type of relationship with Carrie. So this may be months, six months. I don't know, maybe a year later. I don't know. And the the father is that's how it opens. The father, her father thinks that. That's not necessarily a good idea. And she's like, you know, basically, but out, I can kind of, you know, I can handle this myself. We haven't figured it out, but I can handle it. Uh, and that's when the Griffin, you know, breaks through the window in a great two page, two page splash and captures her. And that's when Caleb trying to, to rescue her suffers. He's got a bad heart. So he suffers a heart attack. And then Griffin flies off with her and then he gets rescued by which this is we first found out that Namoret is either working there or just visiting. There's no explanation. I don't remember how she came in because she wasn't in the first issue. No, she just appears. Yeah. Uh, I guess we should have expected that. I want to look at that two-page spread for a moment uh, as the Griffin comes through the large picture window. <coughs> I am struck by the number of glass shards. Um, I don't know how Byrne does this. Uh, you know, it's shattered glass. And it's going flying, but of the two-page spread, there must be literally hundreds of these triangular shards that are either falling, reflecting, or glinting in the sunlight. Uh, it's just an amazing piece of artwork um, that that shows you not really the face of the Griffin, but I think the impact is a startled uh, shattering that goes flying. And later on, as you take a look at at you know the next two panels. There's still hundreds of little shards that are still falling as he assaults or tries to grab up Carrie. Um, just absolutely amazing. Um, well, it's I don't know burned. if he's got a, a computer program that's helping him at this point. Do you have I don't, any clue? I don't think so. This is 1990. I don't think he's doing anything that I think he's just, he loves, and we've talked about this on the show over the years, that he loves to draw. Uh, rubble, what he calls, what Brian says he calls his argle bargle. Mm-hmm. So I think this is just his way of filling in. And and Burns a quick artist; he's fast. So I think he's. I, I I would like to know if he did he draw the Griffin and then laid the the shattered or the shards over the Griffin because they all, they almost obscure. To your point, it kind of you can tell who it is, but it's, yeah. it's kind it's of hiding the Griffin storm. exactly. And you just see Carrie and Caleb in the very bottom bottom left where there's no shards. Um, so yeah, it, it's a, it's a, it does what it would, you think if you saw this as a film, that you would just see this tremendous impact and all this, 
this uh, shower of glass would go everywhere. And it also provides Caleb, because he picks up, uh, uses his coat to pick up a, a large shard and tries to tag the griffin. And of course, it doesn't do any good. And that's when he, he uh, strains too much and he has his heart attack. As I reread this just a half hour or so ago, I, I had to look carefully at the coat that he whips off. It's got a fur collar. I think this was a style of the time period, but I could be mistaken. But it's interesting to see how he whips it off to protect his hands as he grabs a large shard of glass that he uses as a knife's blade. But um, it wasn't clear at first what he was hanging on to. And then I realized, oh, that's the collar of, of, or the the down-filled padding from inside the, the coat as he swings it around. Yeah. It almost, to me, it looks like a bomber's jacket, you know, yes, with, the, yes. with that fur collar that the uh, pilots would wear. I think that's what he was going for there. Yeah. Um, and it works. Namorita, I'm really not that familiar with. when. So when she shows up, like, on the fourth or fifth uh, page here, I was a bit uh, not taken off guard, but I just, I haven't heard the backstory yet. They haven't bothered to fill that in yet. I suspect that uh, Byrne will will uh, introduce her backstory in another issue or two uh, in his own sweet time. Uh, but he clearly is introducing that she's super strong, uh, that Atlantean strength is just several orders above human. Um, but I like well, her. You know, she's, yeah. she's a, a supporting character. Yeah, I, I don't, again, I don't know a lot of, I knew of her. I know she was in the New Warriors uh, quite a bit, that um, kind of young team. I don't know the, the. she's obviously a hybrid like him. I don't know the story about her parents, but she's basically a female namer. She's got the same wings, same skin tone. She's not as strong. She's much younger, but she's just a female yeah, version much, of him. Very much a teen or yeah. young adult. Yeah. Um, and he's going to play her that way. Elsewhere, I think... Depending on what the writer wants, they play her uh, a bit more mature or maybe not. But I think she, like Franklin Richards, will forever be right. positioned as a teen. Yeah, they're, they're gonna, their uh, age is going to kind of go up and down. Okay, I'm wrong. Because she flies to his apartment, which is a different building, which looks, I don't know where it's at. But it's, uh, it's a very ornate looking building that he's fortress. got. Uh, yeah, that does look like a fortress. That he's got, I don't know if he's, obviously he doesn't know think he has a whole building, but it looks more like, it looks like something Norman Osborn would live in. Yeah, and, a penthouse. Yeah. Uh, he's apparently on the top floor, or you could assume that from where the word balloons are, are drawn. I'm trying to think what this reminds me of. Um, uh, Hearst Castle out in California, sort of like that. Anyway, it's not San important. Simeon, yeah. Yes, that's what the word I was trying to come up with. I thought it was interesting that Byrne takes such pains to explain how the Submariner knows which direction to look for the Griffin. Which way did he go? Well, okay, if I uh, connect a line from the Oracle building to where somebody saw a um, apparently a high heel shoe or uh, a pump that was dropped from great height, it leads us to the Statue of Liberty. It's like... Okay, if you say so. New York City's a big place. There are a lot of hiding places, but maybe not that many for a giant lion or griffin. Well, he does, uh, and I don't know if he 
carries us through the through the, the following issues, but he does a lot of exposition through the radio. Uh, it's newscasting talking about you know they they make a comment about uh, uh, a woman. Sh- oh, well, this one is talking about the woman's shoe hit a cabbie, a cab mm-hmm. window, and it's, they they speculate that it had to fall from two thousand feet to have enough, I guess, velocity to shatter the glass. And he's just and he's just like, ah, that's interesting. And then that's when she flies in and says, oh, no, the Griffin. And that's when he 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 does kind of a Superman shirt rip because uh, he was getting yeah. dressed and then flies off. Um, and then he again, we get again. This is feels a lot like when Byrne took over Superman in the 80s, where he would go to a lot of he took patience and time to explain Superman's powers and stuff. So in this one, he's talking about, oh, I have no, he's still trying to keep his identity secret and he's not worried about, because there's so many flying beings in New York, you know, nobody's gonna, nobody's gonna know it's me. And he's so high up too. Of course, as somebody points out later, there aren't, a, there aren't a lot that fly around half naked because he's wearing yeah, just like his that. swim trunks. I, <laughs> I like the fact that they keep, he keeps hitting that again and again, because at a distance, and especially how he's positioned in um, behind a, a an attacker or what have you, Neymar would look naked. Mm-hmm. He, you know, he really would at a distance. So I I I can appreciate that fact. They hit us over the head a couple of times by that, but it's like that's. I think that's a reasonable observation. Yep. And then he gets. I wanted to ask you what you thought about when he gets to the Statue of Liberty. I can't yeah. tell if this is uh, when he's first flying up that the Statue of Liberty itself. I can't tell if that's a photo reference that they kind of traced. I think it's pretty close. Yeah, it's. I would think that it is. Yeah, because the island itself looks like a photo reference when he's flying. He, you see him loop around and you see an overhead shot of the island. That looks like he's taking a photo and kind of uses it as reference, which Byrne does. He does that. He'll do the kind of a uh, not a tracing, but he'll do. Uh, he did that. He did that effect a lot in the Fantastic Four later on when he was, which is fine because it gave it a little more realism. The Griffin seems to come out of nowhere as uh, Namor circles around the statue and is looking, investigating. I'm surprised that the, you know, the Griffin can just show up out of nowhere and catch him off guard. But the, it's good for storytelling. It's very dramatic. He, the, you know, we we keep calling it a Griffin. Initially, I would have described him as a lion. The shape of this thing, it's got a lion's mane and some sort of a spike collar around its uh, around its head, Thanks, not yeah. its neck. Um, almost like a, a woman would hold a hairband to hold their hair back out of her face when she was doing makeup. I can't think of what they call that thing. A headband, perhaps. Yeah. But the body is elongated like a cat, um, or not just a cat. Uh, it's got long appendages and, and a double-jointed leg. And a long spiked tail. So it's red scales. I'm looking in the trade uh, reprint of this. So the coloring may be different in the original. But it, uh, the coloring is like a scarlet red. It's scaled all over its body. Except for the tail which appears to be smooth and slightly more orange. It's got huge thorns sticking out of its tail. That, that echoes the uh, headband around its white face. And the, uh, the mane, the hair is a long flowing tress. A lion's mane is the best way to describe it. And uh, although he doesn't pay a lot of attention to it here, there are two huge wings, brown feathered wings, mm-hmm. sprouting from the back of this uh, creature. Also, it's wearing some sort of shoulder harness 
Um, I would call this a leather harness for like uh, weightlifters or in Goliath 2. Uh, when uh, Clint was first introduced as Goliath 2, he grabs a leather uh, harness that he wears. This well, it looks like ex- Hercules wears spike. something like yes. that. It's kind of a yes, thank kind you. Kind of a it's almost like a bra. If you think about it, it's kind of a goes around the shoulders and it and it supports and it's got huge spikes on it. And yeah, this would lend to the thought that this animal, this creature, was at least harnessed at one point because uh, he's got man-made leather straps or harness or whatever you want to call it over his shoulders, around his head, um, as if he could have been tied down at some point. Anyways, I thought that was kind of important to to at least mention for those who don't have the issue right in front of them. Yeah, he's much much larger than Namor. He's probably 10, 12 feet in height, maybe. Yeah, double or triple Namor's height and appearance. So he's he's got an advantage over Namor. Uh, The bottom of uh, these pages are not numbered. In the trade, it's number 40. But there's a small uh, video surveillance drone that is observing the fight. So it's the Mars twins that are watching from the safe security of their headquarters, penthouse, whatever. Uh, so they're watching the fight. That's how they knew about Carrie to begin with. Um, and it the, that's reminiscent of Dr. Doom having a video surveillance of the Fantastic Four uh, in their early episodes. Once or twice, you saw that introduced um, Anyways, I, that's just kind of an echo from the past. He doesn't reference it in the story, but I caught it. Yeah. Well, it's, I thought on the next page, which is nice, where we actually see the Mars twins, the image they're watching on the screen matches the angle of the way he's drawn the drone in the previous page. It's not just uh, a clip of what he's drawn as the two of them fighting. He's gone to the trouble of saying, well, this is a little thing. It's got kind of a wide angle lens and it's, it's below. So that was a nice... Um, but that was a nice detail. Um, and we should say the Mars twins, which were introduced last issue, are kind of a, they're kind of corporate uh, rivals to the Oracle company. They are, uh, Desmond looked to me, looks a little David Bowie-like or yes. um, even, yeah, I guess David Bowie's by the model I'm going with. And he tried to, his sister prevented him from killing himself last issue simply because he was bored. And he had nothing else, I guess, to conquer. And then suddenly um, this Oracle business comes in. So now he's intrigued and now he's putting his resources into that. And he's trying to find out who he wants to find out who the owner of Oracle is. And that's where they're discovering that uh, through this, that he's not dead. That is a submariner, obviously. And they kind of are cut in as interludes in these issues to show that they are investigating the what's going on. So they are kind of and they provide a lot of heavy, um, a lot of heavy uh, uh, exposition because they talk about we all this we mentioned for this. These issues take place after um, Atlantis attacks the big crossover company wide crossover where Namor was believed to be dead at the end of that story. So he thinks he's trying to keep his identity secret so he can run this company and kind of clean up the world and things like that. Uh, instead of attacking it, he decided to use money to make things better. So now we've got these two kind of ginger haired twins that are, uh, they're intrigued by what's going on. And the sister's kind of just going along with the brother. He seems to be driving this investigation. Yeah. The ginger haired is good. The red haired, they truly look like 
uh, twins, brother and sister, almost mirror image of each other. Yeah. Uh, Bowie is a really good description of, of him, perhaps. They're both tall, thin, long-legged. Um, they could be clones of each other. And there's a vague echo here, just slightly of the unnaturally close relationship between uh, Pietro and Wanda. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's as, that's all I'll say about it. There's just the vaguest hint that it's they're an unnaturally close pair of twins for adults but uh that's okay. right they're characters right. this yeah. will pay off later on <laughs> down the road yeah burn does he 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 hints at that uh without being so overt about it he does kind of lay the groundwork that this might be possible and she seems more she seems more stable of the two he seems yes. more ruthless and mercurial uh, Mercur- yeah he's the one that's smoking he's always got a cigarette in his mouth uh and he's talking about how the that i think he says that the when since oracle took over their uh their stock has gone up quite a bit so so that's why he um he wonders if they told the board of directors of oracle if they knew that their boss was uh an enemy alien and she points out that there's even some civil lawsuits still outstanding against submariner so i don't know who's who's suing him in civil court but next couple pages are back to the fight after we check in with Carrie, who's still on top of the statue. She will eventually run down the insides to get out the bottom. But uh, this, the fight sequence is essentially silent um, between Namor and the Griffith. Uh, I keep saying Griffith. It's Griffin. Yeah. Uh, but I like Byrne's silent uh, sequences here because they're very dramatic. They tell the story without a lot of dialogue and maybe a minimal amount of uh, uh, sound effects. Scratch, wood, thud, that sort of thing. Uh, thum, roar, very subtle. Uh, they're, they're not as bad as, as we have seen in other books. No, now, but it's... Namor decides to take the fight yeah. out of the air and underwater. Yeah, it's what he... This is, I think, ties in with the cover, where he is... You get a couple pages of him fighting the griffin in the air where I guess the Griffin has a little more of an advantage because he's bigger and he seems to, and he mentions earlier that because he's basically a mindless beast that, that he's not pulling his punches. So he's really is a savage creature. And then Namor decides, so well, I'll just, I'll take him underwater where I am in my element and be able to defeat him. And then we get, uh, this is where we get introduced to Headhunter, although we don't know she's called that at this time. And I don't know if it was clear the first time I read this, but she's in it like an all red room. She's very pale. I think they we later discovered that she has an albino. Yes. But she's in an all red room listening to the TV. Again, he's using television to kind of further the story. And they're yep. talking about a naked man fighting a flying lion. And this intrigues her. We don't know yet why. And she's talking to someone off screen and or off panel. And the way Byrne has written their dialogue, something is different. Because he's got like punctuation or like a hyphens uh, in between every word. So yeah, it's halting. None yeah. at all, but such things are that sort of a, a measured it, response. Right. It's some type of a different, different, uh, there's something odd about the way these persons are speaking. So she get dressed and she's wearing uh, like completely covered eyeglasses. They were they were very popular in the um, the eighties and nineties. It was a sunglass that has kind of side shades on it, and she gets dressed and then leaves. So that's kind of our brief introduction to her. 
interesting thing in this sequence of five panels as she gets dressed, you never see who she's speaking to, but if you run the panels in reverse, it would almost be a striptease down to her yep. slip cover. Yep. Um, so she's, she's dressed uh, very stylishly in scarlet, which mimics the, the whole shading of this page. Um, but very, not quite formal, but it's very, uh, I won't say business-like, but it is extremely stylish in a pantsuit, uh, a business, maybe a female business executive, but uh, with a little bit more flash. Very big shoulders. And her, yeah, it, you may, you bring up a good point, Kurt. I, for some reason, when I was looking at this, it looked like this room is bathed in a red light. But yes. I think just everything is red. Maybe that's it. And maybe it's I, I not. I think you're right. Uh, my impression was that she was in a in a room that was lit with scarlet or pink, and I right. not knowing anything about her, I didn't know where this was going. I had no clue, but I recognized Byrne as sowing the seed for something a subplot that's mm -hmm. going to materialize later on. Yeah, and the your stark point. contrast between this page and all the rest of the book. Are I think that's so a, dramatic that's because they're, it's kind of like twilight um, in the rest of around Liberty Island, or at least maybe an overcast day. So the, when you turn to that page and you see the pink, it is so shockingly different. It stands out and really accentuates it uh, before we get back to the fight. It almost feels like uh, a horror film. It's you don't know. You have no idea who this person is, why they're interested in Namor. She doesn't know who it is at this point. Uh, she just mentions that, um, she says if it's something that can be exploitable, then there's profit in that. So that's why she's getting dressed to go uh, go follow. And to your point, she's very, you know, Byrne has always done this, that uh, the Mars twins are always dressed very, um, their dress is very stylishly and it's very, uh, contemporary to when the book came out. Berner's always paid attention to these are the fashions of when I'm drawing this book and I'm going to draw in that way. And this one, she's got, she's got striped pants, striped shirt. She's got almost a polka dot or a, maybe a, a leopard print kind of tie that she's putting on or a, or a some type of a scarlet scarf, scarf, maybe something. She's got kind of short red hair. Uh, she's almost got, She's almost got uh, human torch hair, kind of flip over. Yes, but, yes. Yeah. If Johnny was, yeah, as Byrne draws him, if she was blonde, yes, that yeah. would be Johnny's hairstyle. You're right. Yeah. But it's it's not quite a pixie cut, but it's extremely no. short. But it's that it's very popular of the day. Of um, and then to your point, we get back to Carrie, who's making her. She she was deposited like in the torch. Up the, so she had, yeah. Yeah, so she has to make her way all the way down to the fire exit. And I thought it's a nice touch that when she leaves, she see her leaving at the fire door, she is shading her eyes because she's been in this darkness the whole time. And she's coming out in this bright light. And obviously you're going to, you know, have that reaction that you can't see. Uh, and then she sees the, the churning water, churning water, there's blood that and then the griffin just just a nice splash page at the end. He just roars up out of the water. Right in front of her. Right, and looming it, over her. Yep. This like, would would almost have made a good cover, or it, it mimics sort of the opening of the, the story where he's assaulting her, breaking in to kidnap her, and we're, all, we're right back to that yep. same <clears throat> dynamic again to close this issue. Yep. It was a good, I mean, it's it's a little more setup 
in this issue because we get a little more about the Mars twins. We get introduced to Headhunter, but there's also a lot of action in this between Namor and and then what? You know, I'll let's just go on to issue three. Unless you've got something else to say, you got anything else to comment only on this one? Tr- only in the trade paperback um, to pre- to present the. Double page spreads uh, appropriately. They have a blank page in between the issues, and they have ch- selected artwork from the book. This next one, uh, in between issues two and three, there's a full page blow up of that shirt rip that Namor has done earlier in this episode. No. So you you aren't treated to that in the original book, but I'm treated to that in the trade paperback. So yeah, well, so I'm, I'm reading. Ready. I'm yeah, I'm reading a scan, so I don't. I'm ready um, for three. Okay. We should. I like to point out that the uh, the the cover logo on these books, which has Marvel Comics in it, and it's got the issue and price and the code, is Namor in a suit. So this is businessman Namor in this, and he's kind of he's kind of looking at you and giving you kind of a wry smile. Right. All right. And let's get on to for the first three. time in issue two. The masthead says Marvel's first and mightiest mutant. That mm-hmm. was not true on the first page, first issue. But it's, it is there as of the second and the third and uh, is ongoing. Yeah, and I don't remember when they started kind of attaching that name to him, that he was the first, when he was determined to be a mutant and not something else. So I think I it's know. the first issue. Um, the first issue's cover says an all-new direction for Namor the Submariner with a new stylized logo that, that continues all the way through. Yeah. Um, and then as of the second issue... It says Marvel's first and mightiest mutant. And I think that was an intentional effort to um, to, to uh, market, to uh, position this as another mutant book, uh, but also sticking in, sticking the finger in the eye of uh, Claremont and the X <laughs> uh, books to say, uh-huh, I'm first. Um, yeah. Well, just think about the subtle, 90s. The, the X-Men were red hot in the 90s, so yep. anything that had to do with mutants, but to your point, it might be burn kind of poking them in the eye to say, yep. yeah, you're not the only mutants out here. All right. Issue three. Uh, it's at the same cover price of a dollar. Our writer and artist is still John Byrne. Our anchor is still Bob Wycheck. This one, the colorist is Glennis Oliver. So we have a new colorist letters. Kenny Lopez cover art is by Byrne and our editor is still Terry Cavanaugh and editor in chief is still Tom DeFalco. Uh, this had a release date of April 3rd, 1990, with a cover date of June 1990. Uh, 32 pages, 23 a story. Uh, again, no no new original artwork during this month. So this is the only thing he, he was working on. Namor, Submariner number three. Story is entitled Meeting of the Board. Our players in this are Namor, Caleb and Carrie Alexander, Phoebe and Desmond Mars, uh, the Griffin, also known as John Horton, and Headhunter. So, and a few obscure characters. We open our issue on a garishly painted red helicopter flying towards the Statue of Liberty. The woman in red, seen from the last issue we learn, is called the Headhunter and responding to reports of a naked man fighting a lion creature. She spots a griffin emerge from the water towards Carrie Alexander. The creature drops at her feet as Namor flies out of the water. He was able to defeat the griffin underwater. Namor tells Carrie she must determine he must determine who sent the monster as he carries her and the griffin to see her father in the hospital. The headhunter discovers Namor is not dead, and she has her pilot follow in the helicopter. Cut to the Mars building, 
as we watched as we watched Headhunter follow Namer. They have they have the Mars twins have a history with the Headhunter and wonder why she is interested in Namor. Namorana rushes into the intensive care ward to see Carrie at her father's side. He had a heart attack in our last issue. Namorana returns to her cousin's high-rise apartment to find him searching Avengers files on the Griffin. He discovers a creature, who in his human form is John Horton, was created by the Brand Corporation, a subsidiary of Roxxon Oil. The company has used super beings in the past, so Namor suspects someone from Roxxon sent the Griffin to kidnap Carrie. See last issue. He flies off to confront them. Interlude. Costa de Oro Negro, South America. Two men discuss possible sabotage to a new type of oil tanker. They want to notify the new owners of Oracle of the possible danger. Namer lands at a safe house where he is keeping the griffin in a makeshift cage. The beast is filled with mindless rage and cannot provide any answers. But the Prince of the Sea breaks the griffin into submission and rides him like a steed into the night. They crash through the skylight in the Roxon Hightower office interrupting a board meeting. Namor grabs the nearest executive and demands answers. The businessman knows nothing of Oracle or Carrie, but Namor thinks they are just covering their actions. He leaves the board to deal with the Griffin. Namor arrives at the hospital and asks Namorata about Caleb's condition. She asks why he is not in disguise, but the time for that is over. All of the Roxon board saw him. The world will soon know that Submariner is alive. He offers to take Carrie home, but she tells him they can't see each other anymore. She and her father will always be in danger if they continue. All this takes place as a drone spies on the couple from outside the window. The Mars twins are watching everything. Desmond tells his sister she must use her feminine charm to entrap the Avenging Sun. To be continued. So, more setup in this issue. Not as much fighting. Not as much action. Uh, We don't really get anything else more about Headhunter. Um, um, I think the name is used for the first time, isn't right. it? Right. This is. This is when they and first there, time they call her that. <clears throat> there's also a logo on the side of the helicopter. It's not, it's prominent, but it, I don't think it's terribly important. Um, it, it sort of looks like crosshairs. Yeah. That's the only thing I'll say about it. I don't think it's significant as it pays off, but um, the, the fact that everything around this woman is scarlet, her dress, the helicopter, the person that sh- that is flying the copter for her has a huge red mustache and red um, eyeglasses. He's got normal uh, Caucasian flesh tones as opposed to her, her alabaster white skin tones. Um, but otherwise, everything about her is scarlet. Or, yeah, scarlet or, or, or pink. shades of pink. Um, even he's wearing everything. His suit is yeah. red. His... Headset, his sunglasses, his mustache is red. So maybe she only hires gingers. Could uh, be. We'll see if and, that pays off. Yeah. Well, it's later than the, when the Mars twins are watching the helicopter take off. They it's when they first refer to her as. Um, they said, "Don't you recognize that?" And she's. Uh, they they refer to her as being a um, an albino, and that they hint that they've had history with her, had some dealings with her that didn't go well. So they are more intrigued as to why she's interested. We same with us. We don't know why she's interested in Namor, except she thinks somehow she can profit from it. Yep, corporate, corporate yep. maneuvering and financial gain themes that's, that's, of the '90s. Right. That's that's what's intermixed between these all these issues so far is traditional superhero action versus more corporate. Um, to your point, intrigue shenanigans and everything is run. You know, these powerful people are using money. To try to control things versus just uh, 
a flying man beating up a flying lion. Um, and the, the flash page is nice when you see the griffin and what he's done with the glass in the previous issue, he's kind of done with water in this one where he's emerging out of the water, right, almost right on top of Carrie as she's kind of stumbling back. Yeah, they, uh, Burn misleads you thinking that the griffin mm. is attacking, but in fact, he's more being thrown up out of the water and slumping right by Namor, being hurled and he collapses right at Carrie's feet. Yep. Namor didn't know that Carrie was there. He just threw no. him up out of the he water. He threw him up out of the water. But, but Burn just... misdirected you thinking that it's an attack. Well, he even misdirects us because in a previous issue where he's coming out of the water at the end, yeah. he's, he's written in that he's roaring. You don't right. have it here. So here you assume that he, but his eyes are open. He comes out. Uh, maybe it's a, a glass gas, but he, he lands with a, with a wonk and he's out. And he explains he's able, basically able to uh, defeat him underwater because, you know, he, that's his element. Notice how, how very effortlessly Namor flies the Griffin and mm-hmm. Carrie across the skyline back to uh, back to the city. Uh, just that seemed unnatural to me. Of course, you know, suspension of disbelief. You will believe that a man can fly based upon his ankles, uh, his ankle wings. So, you know, OK, so he's got an unconscious Griffin that he's dragging through the air by his shorts. He's got him. Yeah. He's grabbing by his uh, basket by his underwear. Worn um, yellow yellow shorts. Yep. They have a hole in the back to allow for the tail to escape. <laughs> tail. And that's when uh, the helicopter chase him, you know, decides to follow him. And I did notice this. If you look in that bottom panel, you see the helicopter. Namor is in the distance flying off the helicopter. Then you see the drone, the, the Mars Twins drone is following the helicopter. And that's when we cut to them and we... The, the hint that there's something going on um, and a, a reference again to the fact that she stopped him from killing himself. Yeah. I'm getting a little tired of that. He, they, yeah. He's already established that Let's move on three times now. Yeah. But I, that may also be important uh, later on down the road, but uh, you know, it's like time to move on. Yeah. Uh, I agree. Namorita shows up at the emergency ward, the intensive care ward. I did not recognize her. She is well disguised here uh, with shorts, you know, rolled up sleeve jacket, huge glasses. What do you call those things? They're not Coke bottle glasses, but they're not wide, wide frame. Uh, you know, just totally changes her, her appearance and long blonde hair. You wouldn't know who it was unless somebody reacted to her. Well, and she's got, and in fact, Carrie calls her Nita. Yeah. Well, maybe, maybe that's her nickname. But she's got something over her shoes, like some kind of a pulled down sock, something to hide her ankle wings. Yep. And with the with the haircut kind of with her hair down and the big glasses, she looks like uh, the Deborah Whitman from Spider-Man. Yes. Good. Good catch. That's that's a, that it's is, the glasses that do that. That is how she looks. Yeah. At least in this appearance. Uh, so she's obviously under wraps, looking quite human, hides her ears. There's no way to see that she's Atlantean Yeah. Uh, until we get to like the next page when she flies in the dusk in through the window to Namor's apartment when she's not, you know, she's not hiding anymore, but no. she's still dressed the same, carrying yeah. her shoes, long ponytail flapping behind her, uh, very much which, in her element. Which, and this seems like he's in, okay, he's not in his, when she flies, she's flying back to Oracle headquarters, not his yes, apartment. Yes, you're right. 
Yeah, so it's where he's, and he explains where they think he's dead, but apparently he still has access to the Avengers. He can, he has all the codes to get into their server, I guess. And that's when he does, we kind of get a little um, background on the background drift. of the beast. This is after he's turned blue, or maybe he was gray at that time. Um, and he's fighting the, the the griffin who has more of a human. He's got a human face, doesn't have the tail, doesn't have the clawed feet. He has clawed hands. And that's when he's, when you, if you read up on him, he says he later he was uh, learned, he's continued to mutate in prison. There's also a, a small inset in this flashback that shows Warren Worthington, the angel, uh, bare-chested, yeah. wearing pants. Uh, he apparently was also in that Beast adventure from uh, Amazing Adventures. I don't know which issue it is. It's in the low teens, though. Yeah, but, uh, I don't, I'm not, I I've think, never read any of those. So. I th- it wasn't one issue. I don't remember which issue, but it basically Warren was uh, seeing reports of a furry beast and shows up to help him and basically says, Hank, is that you? And the beast turns away from him and says, I can't deal with you right now. I've got to deal with this on my own and blows him off. So wow. it was a way to get the X-Men involved in the, the story as a guest star. But Warren respects his privacy and says, OK, you know where to find me. And that's that's basically all that happens there, as I recall. Yeah. Well, when the when the beast changes, I know he does it to disguise himself and he turns more. He turns gray, and he turns. Yeah. He finds out that he can't reverse it. He's kind of screwed up. Was he a, an Avenger at that time? Was he still with the no, X Men? He was on his own. The X Men book had stopped. Um, the The X Men had all gone their separate ways, so to speak. Uh, he was working for maybe it, it's Roxon, and due to the politics of the initial situation, he felt he he had to to um, he didn't want to blow his cover as a scientist at rocks on but he felt mm-hmm. like he had to take action so in a stupid logical move not not thinking this through he decides to mute he's got the chemical basis of mutation and he decides to mutate a mutant himself <laughs> yeah so it's sort of like dr jekyll and mr hyde he's taken it he mutates himself becomes a gray beast so he's free to act so nobody will recognize that it's him and then he's stuck. Oh, my God, I can't go back again. I'll have to wear this latex mask right over top of the beast furry face. No way. It never passed. Oh, but I, didn't, it's I didn't know I did that. <laughs> yes. And so for the next you know, six issues or so, he's trying to keep this dual identity and, and uh, you know, keep his the fact that he's the beast. His coloring changes from gray to blue. Uh, he never in those six issues ever becomes an Avenger. That happens over uh, later on, a year or so later on. But uh, somebody, is it Patsy Walker? Somebody, a, an ex-girlfriend, recognizes him and says, you can't fool me. I know you. You're Hank McCoy. <laughs> You're the Beast. Literally now. So, yeah. you know, he's got a secret identity, but somebody else has figured it out. And I don't think they went very far. There were only like six issues one of yeah. which was a reprint because they missed deadline, and then the last one kind of gets the band back together again for the uh, the the, the uh, Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. Um, it, 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 it didn't. It was a launch of an ongoing series that sputtered and stalled very quickly. So yeah. that's that's the background of that series. He doesn't join the Avengers until we get to the Avengers, and even then. 
the Avengers misses deadline. And so they reprint an episode of Amazing Adventures where he meets and supposedly kills Iron Man. No, he doesn't really kill Iron Man. It's a, <laughs> uh, a metal image by Mastermind who's fooled him to try to get him to go rogue, to, to go on the run. Anyways, that's more than you wanted to know. <laughs> no, 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 it's, it's fine. Well, I guess it implies that if he has, if Namor has access to the Avengers files, then yes. when they brought in Hank as an Avenger, I guess the first thing you do is, okay, set your profile up and write reports on all of the villains you've ever fought. So we'll yep. put that in our database. And um, so then that way he, they have cross-reference for that. So this is... Like, we get a lot of exposition. I mean, I think some of that was kind of unnecessary. It's like, well, yeah, I've still got access to the Avengers files because um, I like it. Yeah, explains it. Byrne may be going to an absurd detail to justify things, but for somebody who's never read anything else, this book is self-contained. It tells you the the salient points that you need to know. It justifies how access, how Namor has access to it. I like it. I, you know, it, it may seem like it's overly detailed, but it very, I find it very engaging and it makes it a real world, a complete world for me. So. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it, 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 um, instead of just having an editor's note saying, see event, issue of, uh, whatever it was that the piece was in, he gives us a little, a one panel, little, uh, shot of the old be- of beast and you know it gives him a chance to draw the beast again and of the griffin and then we get the reveal that it's roxon who is behind lots of nefarious things so bad kind oil. Of, yeah. oil bad oil <laughs> yeah yeah that's that's the, you know it's obviously roxon is a stand-in for exxon but um then he's kind of he kind of hot-headed i thought it kind of hot-headedly goes in well that's when we get our interlude here which is going to be burn again setting things up we get one page of two guys in a warehouse that has been renamed from the parallel companies, not Oracle. And they're talking about sabotage and they're obviously on a dock somewhere. And then the last panel, you see this silhouette, this huge tanker or something. They said there's never been a tanker like this one. So they seem concerned that some group is going to sabotage this tanker and they need to let the new owner, uh, which is now Oracle, let them know. So we're kind of setting the groundwork of Something, something that's going to be coming up in other issues. I love the moodiness of that last panel that shows yeah. the huge hulking silhouette of this tanker. And significantly, it's balanced by a full moon that's slipping mm-hmm. behind the clouds, which is yeah. uh, a metaphor for trouble on the horizon. Yeah. Uh, go uh, back up one page. The upper right-hand corner, Namor, as he's talking to Namorita, what, what, who is his face patterned after? He looks just a little bit different as... We're looking at him face on than anything we've seen before. Does it ring bells? Uh, I it's it's not. Um, I can't come up with it, but uh, we have talked about that he looks that Byrne had changed Namor's look a little bit uh, when he was drawing him in uh, like that Alpha Flight issue, and he was drawing him in the, he drew him with more of a uh, the way Everett I think originally drew him, kind of a larger forehead, more of a squared off top of his skull. Flat and now head. he's yeah absolutely flathead. And now he's yeah. drawn more as just a um he looks a bit like Black Adam from DC. Uh just yeah. big eyebrows, slick back hair, pointed ears. Um I did want to point out that look on the panel where he's where she flies in the window and he's sitting at his uh chair at the computer. They have changed his 
and I see you say it throughout the rest of this issue. His belt buckle has an S on it. Before it was like a um, a seashell. seashell. Now it says S, which I'm assuming is for Submariner. I would think it'd be an N or Namor, but I don't know why that changes because she still has the seashell on her belt. We saw her in her costume earlier. But I didn't catch that. Good yeah, one. I don't know why he's um, yeah why he's changed it, but um, I thought the the scene where he goes and he, again to get more explanation that he's he's got all these uh, abandoned warehouses. He he talks about the advantage of owning a corporation that he has so many, he calls bolt holes and safe houses. In other words, it's just one of these generic abandoned uh, warehouse or dock warehouse somewhere where he's built kind of a, looks like kind of a flimsy cage for the Yeah, it's Griffin. an old style jungle gym. We used yeah. to have those back in the late 50s, early 60s for kids to climb on. They were notoriously dangerous. There were nothing but uh, clamped pipes. Um, yeah on playgrounds and they've since been redesigned and, and improved a hundredfold, but I recognize what he's, he's uh, got yeah. there. We, we called them monkey bars. Yeah, um, exactly. So we had, and it was just a big square. So if you fell, you were going to crack your skull open pretty good. Yep. Um, he sees that the, he's been, he's healed up. So whatever wounds he, he uh, inflicted or healed up. And he basically, he, <laughs> he beats him up. He, uh, you know, I said in my synopsis, he he breaks him like breaking a horse. But he basically says, you must learn who your master is. And he just punches him. And then yeah. when he, he jumps him again, he kind of knows. Yeah. Like he was swat a dog. Yes. And I like that sequence. Yeah. I, I like I it. I where it was going, but I like it. <laughs> it's a little, you know, I don't like some people hit dogs. So that's a little, that, that bugged me a bit. But he just does it once. Then he hops on his back and then the griffin kind Grabs of. the bane. Yeah, he kind of sees him as being okay. You're, I guess, you're the alpha now, and he rides him off. He bursts, they burst through this cage. And he rides, he rides him like a like a like a horse throughout into the night. Yeah, I'm not certain that the Griffin is broken yet, but it certainly seems to work. He at least takes him. <clears throat> he at least can guide him. Yeah, it's an interesting image, and I like it a great deal, especially as it pays off as it, they break into. Uh, rocks on again with the uh, the thousands of shards of glass, um, you know, breaking through the skylight. Well, I That's love the rocks and that one big splash where he's coming up to Rocks and Plaza. Uh, yes, again, it's a beautiful, page. yeah, of the, that that um, um, the perspective he's drawn. And Berna's been great at this, where he's got all these other buildings around it, and you see this really lit up. It's got like glass. Got kind of an angle. It looks a little bit like Four Freedoms Plaza. It's got an angled glass top, and then it's got. I guess those are two helicopter landing pads, and they're having uh, kind of a generic board meeting talking about profits. And then, you know, those helicopter pads threw me at first. Clearly, the H stands for helicopter, but the other one looks like a capital I. And I looked at that, and I looked at that, and I looked at that, and it's like it's not a play on the word high. Why in no. the world did they do that? And then all of a sudden it dawns me. It's turned 90 degrees if the wind was coming from a different direction. You'd land on the other copter pad. I guess that's what it's for. I just didn't understand why they both be, one would be turned at a 90 degree. But yeah, you're right. But in the way he's drawn it, it almost looks like that the top of the building is supposed to be flat. But the way he's drawn it, it almost looks like it's a bit of, at a bit of an angle. Yeah. Um, and then Namor just crashes in, similar to, again, Will of the Shards and... Everybody, uh, everybody, everybody's in 
Byrne loves to do this. He loves to draw like uh, a, a completely black suit. Uh, he did that a lot odd times with Lex Luthor when he was doing Superman. So the only thing that's, that has any coloring or shading is the white cuffs of their shirts. And they've got like, thanks to my have pocket squares and the shirt a little bit. But their their shoes, the pants, the coat, everything is a solid black. I don't know who this guy is. I thought he was the chairman of the board, but I... I guess he's at the head of the table. Yeah. But he obviously knows nothing of what Namor's mm -hmm. saying. No. And Namor doesn't believe him. He doesn't, because uh, the guy's like, I don't know what you're talking about, you know. Um, and it's interesting, and Namor is, he's hoisting the guy up by his collar, but Namor himself is hovering. He's not sitting on the ground. And then he just tosses the guy down and basically claims that, well, uh, you know, you, you guys are just lying, but you know I know. So then he just leaves the griffin there. So I can imagine this griffin murders everybody in that room, or which is a little, I think, um, for the Namor to leave the griffin there knowing he could probably harm somebody is a little... Uh, well, in one point of view, he's yeah. just returned their property. Yeah, exactly. But still, it's... it's yeah, you know, it is threatening. You don't know yeah. how this scene is going to play out. Yeah. But I, I think it comes back later <laughs> on. The griffin does come in. I, I've read ahead, and I can't, but I can't remember. He does come back. And yeah, kind there's of, one one key scene that I remember that I'm not going to say right now, but uh, there, there's one scene that I thought was pretty cool, how he reintroduces him and, and how it pays off. He kind of becomes a supporting, kind of a supporting character a little bit. Yes, but um, you don't know that at this point. No. Um, the next to the last page, uh, Namor is striding through. It. It's either a cafeteria or it's the nurse's station. It's not clear, but uh, he's obviously going to intensive care. And the nurse reacts says, hey, hey, you can't come right <laughs> here dressed like that. And Namer just turns and gives her a look, and she just yeah. shuts up. Uh, well, I thought it was funny that he abandons his uh, businessman persona, because when he comes in, Namer says, well, everyone's going to see you. He's like, ah, doesn't matter. Everybody on the rocks and board saw me anyway. So I, they're going to know I'm alive. It doesn't make a difference. And that lasted two issues. Maybe of him. Yeah, I was surprised that didn't be... go any longer. It's like yeah. very, very odd. But well, and then Namorita unmasks as well at the end of this page. Oh, yeah, I didn't she notice that. Off, yeah, yeah. She takes she, off uh, her glasses and fashions her ponytail, and it's like, back up. oh, okay, the charade's over. Yep. Uh, and then we had this whole heart to heart with uh, with Carrie, and same thing with her. Her and her father are kind of. They immediately say, "This is really two issues." Well, we can't. I can't see you because you know you're a, a hero, and people are always going to be coming after you, or they can get try to get to you through me. So I'm always going to be in debt. It's that same old story, you know. Anybody who's involved with a superhero, you yep. are my weakness. And basically, they she says, I can't, I can't see you anymore. So that's over. And I don't remember her coming back in. I don't. I'd have I to read ahead. And that's a, it's like she was there. Her and her father were there to set things up, and then they're kind of swept away. Um, and then we see the drone again, which is outside the window, which apparently for someone who's said he had like, um, could spot the grain of sand and a beach a mile away. He does not notice this drone. that's hovering and well, it's in silent mode. Yeah, that's true. And then maybe it's got, and then we, we get the, the Mars twins who are, uh, that's when he, again, he decides to, she says, well, the Griffin didn't work. That was a disaster. But now they think they spot his weakness, which is Carrie, or or at least 
maybe just a hint that he likes women. Or he likes a pretty face. And we get a little more of this hint that you talked about earlier. They may have a little closer relationship than they should. And he basically tells her, you got to go and charm him and seduce him for whatever means they want to do. And that's how it ends. Yep. Another shot of a building in silhouette. Again, sir, square, sort of like the uh, World Trade Center. Yeah, well, sort of. but we saw the world in one of the... I think the last issue when the, they're flying over Statue of Liberty, uh, Byrne has drawn the, the two towers. Oh, I missed that. Yeah. But this, they keep showing this. This is their building. I guess the Mars building. Yeah. It's got this yep. X kind of motif going down the side of it. Um, and I, I, I think it's funny is that when they're watching the scene, he makes the joke about, you know, I'm watching the days of our lives. They've drawn her with a somewhat of a smug look on her face. I don't know why she is... He's drawn her looking this way because she seemed kind of concerned throughout the rest of the, the, the issue. But she's like she's pleased with what's going on. I don't I don't understand Ooh, that, Phoebe? that expression. Yeah. Yes. In the first panel of the last page here, she yeah. does look a little bit pleased to see Carrie breaking up with Namor. But then she looks a little uncomfortable in the next two panels as Desmond comes around and embraces her from behind with a cigarette in his hand, and it feels unnaturally close. Uh, but but he's trying to persuade her. He's like, right. oh, I'm sure you can charm Namor. That's the next move. And she's she looks a little uncomfortable at that point. So, yeah, I read that as she's happy to see these broken up. And I think perhaps that's the point of what Carrie is supposed to play in this this uh, right. This ongoing role to one establish Namor's interest in the ladies and two give an entry point for Phoebe to get into his life. Right. I think she was there kind of a she was there as a like a plot device. Um, yeah. To yeah. Have her to her. I, you know, liked, it, I liked her and her her uh, father Caleb's uh, character very much, and I'd like to see them return in some fashion. And I don't recall that they do, but uh, let's not get ahead of ourselves. Yeah. You want to know well, what the uh, the splash page, uh, the the insert for the blank blank pages at the end of this? What you're just talking about, Namor hoisting that uh, chairman of the board off the ground? It's an insert. It, the uh, it's the that page one. is a, a close up of that artwork of Namor and the man just dangling in midair. So somebody's got a nice taste for selecting great mm -hmm. images for this um, blank page that they have to insert to make the double page spreads. Uh, appear correct when they're doing these reprints. Nice eye for design in the trade. That's what I'm reading, by the way. Yeah. Well, the I just went back to look at that page you were talking about, and when he's here, when he's um, interrogating this businessman, Namor basically spills the beans. He kind of gives all the information. This guy knows nothing about it, but he basically reveals everything. You know, yeah. I was in hiding. I'm behind Oracle. You know, all this is like, well, you were just you're just giving it all away now, Namor. But um, I wondered if that was telling us that Namor's blood, uh, blood oxygen levels were uh, starting off. Well, he doesn't. That's the thing. He's not. You never see him wearing this monitor that I think of went around his wrist that Caleb invented for him. You never see him wearing that at all. And I don't know if the whole blood imbalance thing ever comes back again. I don't think it does, but I no. thought it was going to. It should. I mean, that that if you introduce that, that's if that's your MacGuffin, then you need to, you know, if that is um, Chekhov's blood thinner 
or blood imbalance device, that needs to be brought in uh, again. Don't just drop it or, or at least make him have reference to like, oh, you know, I checked feels, this morning. Yeah, I checked it or I don't feel good. Maybe I need to get into the water. Something like that. Yeah. Just so, just yeah. so it kind of keeps it alive, you know, you know. Well, overall, what you think of this one? I like the uh, the two issues. I think they work well together. Again, it's advancing the plot and pulling in other new characters to show relationships. I agree that Namor spilled the beans in front of Roxxon. I, you know, you would think that he would be smarter than that, but yeah. he's a bit pissed, as he says. By yeah. Neptune's trident, you're all mm -hmm. a bunch of liars. Yeah. Uh, you know, I like this. Uh, I like the series, and I like Burns' pacing and that he's got a, a, a tapestry that he's weaving. And as we go down the road, we're going to start to see some other themes being drawn in and other villains and conflicts uh, brought back from the past. I like it. Yeah, this felt very much like his Superman reboot, where he would he would have a, an ongoing story and then it would kind of hand off to another story. And in between, he would have inserts of what's coming up. So you would hint at something like Headhunter or this uh, super tanker thing. That's kind of hinted at, and then that those stories come in, and then while well, he's got for in each story, he's got hints of a of upcoming story. So that certainly brings you back, and it certainly gets you to buy the next issue. Yeah, um, I think that's pretty clever, and they're yeah. always a complete page, as he said, uh, as Brian has said, he shuffles pages mm -hmm. to re reorder them or to 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 try to keep those subplots cooking. But they're always completely one page, so they could be inserted in different spots. So he's alternating scenes between characters to keep you interested and also sowing the seeds for what's coming next issue and next issue and down the line. I think he's brilliant at doing that. I recognize how amazingly annoying that could be to people who are looking for a done-in-one, complete solo episode. But comics have evolved at this point to be an ongoing serial soap opera. And they're, they're constantly trying to keep the reader buying, coming back to the comic shop and buying the next issue and the next issue, and maybe a couple of the other tangent uh, stories in other titles as well. That's the industry at this point. And, and, right. and, if, I, don't, and you, I don't mind it. No, no. If you're overlaying stories, then you will continue to buy the, the, the run. If it's, these three issues are standalone. These three issues are standalone. Then you might drop off. Okay, that story's over with. I'm gonna I'm gonna drop off. But if you keep keeping them, it's like teasing them, you know. And you're gonna keep them going. We saw this a lot when we covered all his Elsewhere stuff. Except I think he did it a little too much there. He was really jumping back and forth almost too much when he was doing his Elsewhere for my taste. This I don't mind at all. I think it's it's uh, and it's not so convoluted that. I remember when I was reading X-Men, uh, when it was Claremont, and uh, it wasn't as long after Bernard left, but Claremont would have, his stories were so dense that I would, when I got the next issue, I'd have to go back and read the previous because I couldn't remember what happened. Or right. he'd had so many things going on, I'd get lost. Um, this, he doesn't much, this is a much cleaner, I mean, even if he is making some missteps with getting rid of Carrie right away, I think she, you know, if keep her on as as someone in Oracle, her and her father, they can, they can, they can be a, a, an asset to the company. And I, I think I, that's, I, that's, 
that's what's in between the lines here. Right. That they are going to stay on and run Oracle, but Kerry has drawn the line saying, I can't, I can't be involved with right. you. They can't romantically so be involved. Answers the the question that was posed at the end of the first issue of, oh, is she going to be involved with him or not? Well, we have the answer by the end of issue three. Right. She it says, was, no, I can't yeah. do this. Which is, you know, that's, again, that's a, that's a, a, a trope for comic stories. You know, we, we constantly see that the hero's weakness is his loved one or wife or girlfriend or parent or something like that. Somebody that the villain yeah. can threaten to get the hero to do what he wants to do. Um, so I don't, I don't fault him for that. I just think he could have carried it on a little, a little more, a little longer. Um, and I like to have seen, and I don't remember from reading it ahead, more of his environmental uh, workings. You know, he was going to clean up the ocean and maybe again, to your point, that's all happening in between panels. That's the the stuff he's got his company working on that he's out fighting the bad guy. So yeah, we're not going to see that kind of stuff. There's yeah. a couple issues here. Yeah. Uh, I think I've mentioned this in the first episode, but uh, we'll hit it again here. Namor in the seventies, the the title the name the Submariner um, Prince Namor the Submariner was the name of the series when he got his solo book at some point they were casting about trying to find a direction for the stories and I believe Roy Thomas was writing them but I could be mistaken but he became the spokesperson or the champion for the Earth Movement for Earth Day or hippies or however hmm. you want to say it the tree huggers. They had a, a run of stories where he was the champion for nature. And Byrne is going to touch on that in this series in the next several issues. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, if you look at the, I'm going to say the first 10 issues um, and possibly more, each issue addresses a specific um, ecological concern. And that's as much as I'll say right now until we get there. But uh, it, it's kind of fascinating because I didn't quite pick up on it when I originally bought the series. But at some point, Byrne commented in the letters pages or something and said, well, look, this is what I was doing for issue four, for issue five. And then in seven, and, you know, he lays it out. And it's like, oh, OK, that explains why he did, you know, that's mm -hmm. his interpretation of this issue or of that concern or of this controversy. It's like. I, all of a sudden, it came crystal clear. It's like I've never like, read those. Um, is that when Basima was doing the artwork? Uh, I think so. That is the right series. I don't. They're not terribly strong in my memory because by about issue twenty, I thought the series had lost its its direction, and I didn't care for a lot of the characterization, the guest star of the week, whether it's Captain Marvel or. Stingray or Triton or what have you. I, I was getting pretty tired with it. Yeah. And I think in hindsight, I think they were too. Until they got to issue 36, I'll let, spoiler here, by the time they got to issue 36, they killed Lady Dorma off. And the entire series shifts direction as Namor abandons Atlantis and goes off on his own, a tragic figure. And that lasts for, I don't know, another year or two. It's very tragic. He finally finds his father. Captain McKenzie was not killed on the ship uh, when they took Princess Fen back. He finds him, but it loses him almost immediately. So 
kind of the tone of the book shifts at that point, and he becomes this terribly, terribly tragic figure, somewhat like uh, Spider-Man was a constant loser mm -hmm. in the Ditko issues, that nothing ever seems to work out right for me. That seemed to be the theme for where they went to. And, you know, I was out of it by then. I'd left comics for college. So, yeah. Is that before you start showing up in Supervillain Team-Up with Doom? Uh, that, I believe that comes pretty close Later. to the end of that. Yeah. Uh, maybe the 50s or the 60s of his series. I don't know. I wasn't buying comics then, so I can't tell you how the Jigsaw puzzle fits together. Um, I don't think I read any of those supervillain team-ups at all. So I'm, I'm, a, well, I'm I, a blank on that. That's the, to what Burn addressed in his first issue of this, of the, 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 depending on which writer you have, he's either an anti-hero, he's a hero, or he's a villain. He, you know, and this blood imbalance was, was trying to explain why throughout the years he was constantly either attacking the Earth or working with the Avengers or helping them so that kind of explained that was Burns' explanation for this whole his whole history. But yeah, I'm I'm uh, I'm enjoying these a lot. Uh, I haven't I, I I haven't read these since they came off the stand when I bought them originally. But um, well, yeah. that's what we thought. But what do you, the listener, think? We'd like to hear from you. Uh, give us an email. Write to gotta get burned at gmail .com or get on the Facebook page. And post something. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. Think we'd like to hear, hear your thoughts on this Namor series. If you agree with what we've said, or are are we completely off base? Do we misinterpret something? Let us know. Yep. Well said, Dirk. Uh, so, if I, you got anything else? I think that's I've it. Said we've my... been talking for about ninety minutes here, a little yeah. longer than we were expecting, but uh, I've enjoyed it. Thanks for joining yeah. me, Tim. Oh, always. It's always a, a pleasure, Kirk. And we're, uh, as we said, we're going to continue to do this. So it would just be me and Kirk, and we're going to uh, cover these uh, um, sequentially. So we'll probably do two issues at a time, but we don't, you know, do the in-depth the way we do on our regular show. But uh, I think we did a, a good job of covering this. So if you've got nothing else, I think we can we can sign off. All righty. We'll be right. back for issues, what, four and five next, probably. Yep. Uh, three, yeah, four and five. So for Third Degree Burn, I want to thank everybody for listening, and I want to thank Kirk, as always, um, for coming on. Thanks, and have a great day, guys. Stronger than a whale, he can swim anywhere. He can breathe underwater and go flying through the air. The nobles come to their prince of the deep, so beware the deadly demons. Lord Namor of Atlantis is the prince of the deep. Thanks for listening. You can find us and many other great shows at tutufreaks.com. That's T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S.com. Third Degree Burn is spelled with the number three, R-D-D-E-G-R-E-E-B-Y-R-N-E, -E -E, and is part of the Tutu Freaks network of shows. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Just look for Third Degree Burn, spelled with the number three, and Burn spelled B-Y-R-N-E. Compliments, complaints, and recipes can be sent to gottagetburned at gmail.com. That's G-O-T-T-A-G-E-T-B-Y-R-N-E-D at gmail.com. Drop us a line and tell us how we're doing. 
Till next time, this has been Third Degree Burn. Some men aren't looking for anything logical, like money. They can't be bought, bullied, reasoned, or negotiated with. Some men just want to watch the world burn.